other parts and different counties and ways. How many of you are part of the Willowdale community? Maybe we're here this morning. How many of you came from other parts and this is your first time kind of engaging with us in this conversation? Great, thank you for joining us. You know, part of what we're talking about tonight, and, and I have to first applaud you for coming out on a Sunday evening. I know it's a school night, right? So I've got three children. It's, it's not easy to get out on a Sunday night, and so we're just grateful you're doing this. I think you're here because, like us, you see that the world is changing, culture's changing, it's happening rapidly. Many of us are trying to kind of get our head around what's taking place. We want to properly diagnose the problem because none of us will engage well if we don't understand what's happening. And this is a biblical principle. It goes all the way back, and we see in Samuel where, where it's described that the men of Issachar, they understood the times so they could know what to do. And they knew what to do. And so part of this is understanding that the world we live in today, that God's got his hands all over it. That we're not living through some moment in time where God's wringing his hands and wondering, what in the world's happening in American life right now? What are we going to do? Instead, he's going, how will my people be faithful even in the midst of this new challenge. I mean, when you understand the history, when we read scripture, we see story after story after story of God's faithfulness with his people. And that in large part, usually the problem we see historically with what's happening and why the church is so frustrated, it's usually us, right? It's usually the church throughout history that's sort of get, getting in the way of what God's trying to do. And so what we want to do is try to understand how can we make sure we're not the ones getting in the way, Make sure we're removing some of those barriers that seem to be up, some walls that are up now, where people in our culture no longer want to consider faith. And if they are willing to consider faith, the Christian faith is pretty high on the list of those that they're skeptical of. I have a 15-year-old, 13-year-old, and 10-year-old. I'm concerned about the world that they're walking into. I care deeply about their souls. I care deeply about them being discipled and becoming the kind of young Christian men and women that serve God with their life. But boy, is there a lot of competing noise, isn't there? From television to video games to social media to Instagram to Facebook to every one of their friends in fifth grade now having their own phone and trying to keep up and compete with that, right? So I think we're all feeling the tension. Some of you may not have children. Some of you may be in your 20s, not married. You're trying to figure out what does life look like for me? What does it mean for me to be faithful in a culture that just tells me that this world is pretty much about me just pursuing my own pleasure and desires? And so tonight, what we're going to try to do is help you understand a little bit of what's happening. Kind of put our finger on it. Try to understand what's happening culturally and also what's happening amongst Christians. But then move beyond that to say, what does it mean for us to live out this kind of good faith? Good news. We talked about that this morning, that... We wrote a book not called Bad Religion. We think that's what the world's rejecting. We think what the world's hungry for is good faith. How are we going to do that in the midst of a moment where they're critical of Christians? And so David Kinnaman is going to come up and just moment. He's going to start us off by kind of digging into some of the research, show you some of the, the facts. We can't show you everything possible that's in this book, but we're going, to, we're going to try to get through a few high points, get you acclimated a little bit. Um, and David, there's no one better to do this. He's been at the Barna Group for 21 years as a researcher. Um, yes, that means he started at the age of 19. Uh, he was apprenticed by George Barna, who's just renowned around the world for his incredible research over many years, many decades. Um, but he's overseen or conducted, uh, you know, in, in some part, over a million interviews. 
So this is someone who understands spiritual trends. They've always had an eye on the church, evangelicals, uh, what it means for people of faith to engage this world. But alongside that, they work with studios in L.A. They have Sony Pictures and all kinds of places that aren't Christian places, asking them to do market research and to understand the culture. He understands the trends happening in culture that have nothing to do with faith. And so the fun part about working with David is we get to kind of put all that together and like start to see what's happening in the world. So will you join me in welcoming David Hennon? Okay, so I get to be the, uh, the geek who describes all the research. And uh, it's fun being a researcher. We've interviewed uh, I think 30 or 40,000 millennials, for example, over the last couple of, uh, last decade. So millennials are teenagers and young adults. And let me just sort of quickly tell you about some of their reactions to today's churches. We know that 59% of millennials will walk away from their faith. They grow up in a Christian church. They'll walk away from either their from their church or their faith uh, as they get older. And um, and so this is just one example of the irrelevance of faith. I have a, an 11-year-old boy, his name is Zach, and uh, uh, when he was in kindergarten, we were counting down the number of days that he would have left in kindergarten. Zach, you have five days left, and today, Zach, is your very last day in your whole life that you have to go to kindergarten. And so then later that very summer, on a Sunday morning, we get strapped into the minivan, and uh, he said to me, that Dad... How many more days of church am I going to have? <laughs> a lot more, buddy. Yeah. Uh, you know, innumerable number of days. So listen, irrelevance of faith is uh, part of that kind of feeling. It's like, man, is it just, is it like we need it to, in order for us to like have a good Sunday? You know, do we, do, we, do we need to go to church? How many more days of church are we going to have? And this is sort of the experience that a lot of people are having now in our world. We also found in our research that a majority of Americans believe that a lot of the social good that was happening, you've heard from Stephanie about a lot of the really great things you guys are doing during the season of Lent, but most people in these areas, if we were to do a poll, would, would not understand the deep connection between faith and social good, the good things that are happening. And so this is just another indication of the irrelevance of faith. And what I'd like you to consider is that over the last probably several hundred years, but certainly as we measure through social research, the idea of polling was actually invented in part by Gallup to figure out who would be, be voting. You know, they never could figure out sort of who would win the presidential election, so they figured out a way to do a sampling process, and the Gallup organization is one of the innovators in that. And uh, before that, of course, we don't really have good tracking data about what was perception, etc. But irrelevance of faith, it's like you think about the Enlightenment, and you know you can sort of have a rationalistic point of view, and you can have a pretty good life without a, a point, you know, a faith point of view. Most of human history, people were spiritual; they were they had they believed in a deity, they believed in God. In the last really several hundred years, we've seen sort of this notion that you can be a good human being without being a person of faith, with or without Christianity. So irrelevance is this long kind of trajectory over the last you know hundred or more years of people just saying you don't really need to be person of faith to be a good person. Well, what's interesting is that there's a, a growing sentiment that on top of irrelevance, there's this notion of extremism. Let me show you a couple different examples of this. We see that 46% of Americans believe that religion is part of the problem today. 42% say that people of faith are part of the problem. Christians are part of the problem. So this starts to get interesting because irrelevance just means you can ignore it, you know. Um, 
you don't you don't need it to be a part of your life. But extremism means it's actually bad. It's actually bad for you. Now, there's, let's talk about some of the implications of this. For example, um, when your kids are in school and when you're in a career, we hear from a lot of, of students and others who are in, in you know, various careers that. Um, that millennials were in various careers, that as they identify themselves as a Christian, there is this innate skepticism that occurs. You know, my, my, my daughter Emily is a junior in a public high school. She's in the journalism program. It's a pretty, you know, as you can well imagine, affirming of same-sex sort of attraction, et cetera. And so occasionally they'll have articles on the, on the website that affirms that. Even another high school in our area in Ventura, California, uh, they have you know, kind of what color is your rainbow day? You know, it's like you get a, they want you to choose what what sort of association you want to make, right? It's pretty amazing. And so that's that's an interesting place where we're at. We'll talk a little bit about some of those those things today. Uh, but the fact is that if my daughter were to write an article that would say that she does not believe the same sex attraction is a morally right thing to do. 52%, you see third, third down there, 52% of all adults believe that is an extremist point of view. And, and even a higher percentage of, of my daughter's peers, of Emily's peers, would believe that's extremist. And it, it, would, it would be sort of social suicide for her to write an article on her school newspaper about her Christian point of view. This is part of what's happening. And you can see that it's not just about sort of... Um, that one issue, but you can see using religion to justify violence, 93% of Americans believe that that is uh, extremist, and rightly so, right? To use violence to just, to, to use violence and then justify that by virtue of our religion is, a, is an extreme and wrong thing to do. Um, but then look at 60% believe that if you were just to share your faith with others, if you're gonna to try to convert someone to your point of view, uh, to your faith, that's extremist. 42% say that if you were to leave a good paying job, uh, and, and go pursue mission work. That, that's an extremist thing. So, you know, it's an interesting kind of time for us, I think, to be alive. Um, you know, on the one hand, let me just tell you a couple stories. As, as Gabe mentioned, we've got the privilege of being in Southern California, of being able to work with some different studios as they try to understand the faith audience. There have been some different films that have come out recently, the, the movie Noah, uh, Exodus, uh, the, the movie about Exodus, God's and Kings. Is that it, God's and Kings? Yeah, and um, so don't, don't blame us that we worked on the Noah film. We, we didn't have much chance to help him shape the storyline, right? But we tried, we tried to help him understand the faith audience. But anyway, we were working on one project recently where we were telling a group of, of movie executives about the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And um, I'm a pastor's son, come from a Christian background, and I just remember their eyes just like, heard that phrase before, but I didn't know that that was something that Jesus did, right? <laughs> so that's just an example of, you know, kind of irrelevance, like all these interesting, like they actually remembered the phrase, water in the wine, and they had no idea what that, what that was from. Another example was when we were talking, we were watch, watching a movie trailer, um, and, uh, and there was about this, this movie about Jesus that's coming out, and, uh, and the, the lady stopped right in the middle as we were kind of reviewing this trailer with her. So wait, wait, you, you guys actually, like her eyes kind of got big, you guys actually believe that Jesus didn't really, he didn't even have like an earthly father. Like there was like some miraculous thing, we call that the immaculate something, immaculate, uh, you know, and she was trying to remember, right? But it was like, I said, yeah, we, we literally believe that that happened. 
And she just, you know, like, her jaw dropped. It was like extremists, like, I can't believe I've actually met someone who believes that. You know? <laughs> I've heard rumors that you evangelicals exist. So, so extremism is an interesting thing. That's, for me, an example of what's happening within our work. I told you the story of our, our daughter. Um, when this book came out, we got some copies to our house delivered a couple weeks ago. The first few times, I've written another, another two books prior to this. The first two books, man, as soon as it came out, I'm kind of a geek. I run a company, but I'm like a, I'm a nerd, you know, I work with research and data all the time. And so as soon as those books came in, when I wrote my first couple of books, I, I literally remember going to all my neighbors uh, and giving them copies and like, dude, you didn't know it, but I'm like an author, not just a geek, you know? I can, I can write. And, uh, and so they were, you know, like modestly impressed. And, uh, and so when, when this book came out, I ran out to all my friends, all our neighbors, and gave all my Christian friends the copy. And I remember going up to my the door of my, my, my friend David McGuire, whose dad was a pastor, but he is no longer a Christian. Right? He's in his 50s, but he's an example of this growing trend of irrelevance and now extremism, because he'll have conversations about like, like politics with me. In fact, the reason I ended up giving him a copy of the book was he's like, you know, what is the deal with Christians at this Republican election? And are you like, what is going on? I don't even understand it. Right? You guys are crazy. And like he's lumping me in, just assuming certain things about me, and this idea of extremism, and I like I don't even understand it. So I was like, well, sort of reluctantly, I know his sister, you know, is uh, in a same-sex relationship, and I was like, I've got to give him the book because these are the difficult things that we have to talk about, right? Like this is who I am. This is the best arguments that we can make about why we believe some of the things that we believe on these difficult topics. All right, so it's Sunday night. We're having a, a you know. A healthy conversation about some of the challenges that we have. And um, it's important for us to remember that in this moment, we have an incredible opportunity to speak for the faith that drives us, for our love and affection for Jesus. That in as much, some people think that, you know, there's, uh, there's different ways you can think about spiritual gifts. Some people think that Barnett, Barnett the group, people that work with there, have the special gift of spiritual discouragement. <laughs> That's not it at all, friends, right? Like, we're actually trying to help you understand the reality of people's perceptions. We're trying to help you deal with this reality that's emerging. Uh, one of the questions that we sometimes ask people to consider when we think, when you think about your own children and the kind of faith that your children are gonna have, do you love your traditions more than your children? Right, do you, do you wanna like see the faith go forward? Of course we do. And you guys are, you know, to, to again, just complement what you guys are doing through the Constellation Network. It's very rare to see churches that are coming together uh, to, to, to do good in the world. That's part of what we're wanting to encourage you to do. And let me just show you this verse here. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24. This is really the theme verse for our work and for what we're going to spend time talking about tonight. We've talked about this sort of slow burn of irrelevance. Right? And now we're talking about this, this peak, this sort of volcano of, of, um, of, you know, of extremism, and people just start spewing things out, right? Like, well, why do you believe this? What's happening? And, and do you really, are you, like, are you just, you hate people? Are you haters? And this is sort of the context in which the Christian faith is having to figure, figure its own, its, sort of its footing out. 
And so um, this is an encouraging verse because part of what we can take from this is that there's an opportunity for us as believers now to encourage each other. What if on Facebook and social media, Christians were known to always hold back in any kind of critical conversations because, you know, crit critical meaning like critiquing others because really, friends, you know, social media doesn't always make us more social, does it? And, and so what if we as Christians worked really hard at only expressing ourselves in this manner in social media to encourage one another to acts of love and good works? What if we were to acknowledge the great things that are already happening? My brother plays the trumpet for the Navy, the Navy band. All right, he's based in Virginia Beach. And, um, and he gets to do really cool, like, change of command ceremonies for admirals and other folks. And my dad, who's a pastor, um, and, 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 you know, was, uh, my dad was a pastor, recently had a conversation with my, my, he had a conversation with my brother. And, and my brother had played, uh, uh, it was a, a ceremony uh, where Admiral had, had passed away. And so he played taps at his funeral and I think a couple of other, like, trumpet pieces or whatever. And my dad was saying, you know, Matt, it's just such a cool thing that you're doing, you know, as a Christian, what, how you get to, how you get to, like, be there during these very significant moments for people in the military. And my, my brother Matt, who's about 10 years younger than me, he's 30, 32, um, he said, he said, no, I know, Dad, I said, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm leading worship at these events. And I think because I'm there, because I'm bringing my faith to those events, and I'm, I'm just, I'm praying at those moments. Like, I feel like I'm leading worship. That's a, that's a cool story of being a good faith Christian where God has called my brother Matt. And again, let's figure out ways. This is what our whole night is going to be designed. We have to take a look at the bad news, which we've just done. But now let's take, let's spend some time thinking together about ways of motivating each other to acts of love and good works. So with that, uh, Gabe is going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things we've learned about the new moral code and uh, how we can actually put some of these things in, a, in the proper place. So part of what Dave's helped us understand is pop culture is perceiving Christians. The other thing we need to understand is how is the air that we're all breathing in culture? It's all around us. We're, we're reading the books. We're reading the articles. We're um, kind of immersed in this media world and technology and social media. So we're constantly being influenced. Now, in most research, none of us will acknowledge that the media influenced us. So I know many people go, hey, is the reason most people have a negative view of Christians in the media? And we all kind of go, of course. But when you ask somebody that on a research question, they go, no, the media doesn't influence my views. Um, and so that's one of those tricky things to, to try to understand. But we all know that it's influencing us. My point is this. We want to look at a few of the values of our world today. What is the new morality? You see, we all kind of understood this old morality. We agreed on the things that were right and wrong, good and bad, you know, evil, right? We, we kind of just knew that. And now it seems it's all confused, right? We kind of consent. Like, we don't have a consensus now. What one person thinks is right, another person thinks is horrible. So, what's going on there? Let's look at a few of the values in the new moral codes. One is that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. This is a common idea for most of us. 76% of Christians agree with us. 91% of our world agrees with us. Here's the point. We need to be reminded of deep Christian teaching around issues like where do we find ourselves? Is it from standing in front of the mirror and sort of assessing just our feelings about how we're feeling that day and that's how we find who we really are? 
You see, our culture is asking this question. The next generation is asking this question. How do I know what I'm meant to do? How, how do I know what I'm supposed to be? You see, the Christian finds who they are from a fixed point outside of themselves. And it's God. It's the truth. It's the truth about who we are as human beings and the truth about what he's calling all of us towards. To glorify him forever, right? And so therefore, he's the caller. We even get the word calling from understanding there's a caller outside of ourselves. It's not just us kind of cooking up with our feelings what we want to do in life, thinking that's ultimately going to fulfill us. No, we're told in Scripture that part of uh, a fulfilling life is that we actually give our life away. We serve others. That's countercultural. That's not the way that normal person in our culture is thinking today. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most, right? This is how it plays out, 86%. They just believe, look, I need to go make a lot of money, buy the boats, buy the new car, the new house. If I do all of these things, I'll be happy. But you see what the gospel does, and some of you I know commute to New York, or you've kind of been around sort of a mentality that's been built around, and this is kind of a northeastern thing, right? I lived in New York for four years, just recently moved to Nashville. But we kind of have bought into this idea that our money, so our wealth, and our education, right, your credentials, where'd you go to school, what college, that those two things are how we're going to save the world. And what the gospel does is it cuts right through that and says, no, your money and your education isn't what saves the world. It's actually Jesus Christ who saves each of us, and then he puts us on mission to be a part of what he's already trying to do to renew and restore the world. So that's why some people, you know, we would say the gospel offends people. Well, what does it offend? It offends kind of our own consciousness that we think if we earn enough money, if we get enough degrees, if we kind of build our reputation, that we're going to save the world. And that kind of says to all of us, no, it's a great equalizer. That's not how the world is ultimately saved. 79% believe that, that people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Now, does that make any sense? <laughs> Believe whatever you want, as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Right? You kind of see this latest phenomenon, Bernie Sanders, right? Classic example where a lot of youthful people are going, man, free college? This is amazing. Right? I mean, what 18-year-old wouldn't just go, sign me up for that? That sounds like a great deal. And, and they sort of think those beliefs and that decision that they're not going to pay for college, so that's great, won't ultimately affect society. Right? Well, adults kind of know, wait, probably somebody's going to have to pay for that. Okay? That belief will affect a lot of people. And so we all kind of common sense level understand our beliefs affect society. But what you see in general is that our culture, most people, just sort of don't play it all out. They don't think it all the way through. We kind of logically get A to B, but we can't quite get to, you know, G and, and on. So, the next idea that any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable, 69%. Seven out of 10 Americans believe it just doesn't matter as long as everybody's consenting to this. In fact, age doesn't even matter. It's all about being consensual, and then it's okay. Now, this is one of those incredible rules. That, you know, you couldn't miss the Bill Cosby story that's kind of played out, right, in the news over the last six months. Now, a classic example of how our culture quickly jumped on the fact that Bill Cosby's story, and I'm not going to explain those stories, I know we have children in the room, but the point is, our culture was so quick, and I'm not saying they weren't justified, surely they are, but you can see how easily the target was painted on Bill Cosby, right, because he broke this rule. 
And if you break any of these rules, you're kind of seen as the ultimate evil person in the society. So it's an easy person for every single person in media, anywhere, to just condemn Bill Cosby, right? Because he had broken one of these rules that our whole culture's kind of signed off on and agreed to. And the other one I just want to share with you, because I think it relates a lot to us as parents and church leaders, is almost 9 out of 10 Americans believe people should not criticize someone else's life choices or behavior. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation where you kind of had a different point of view and it kind of came across that you were judging someone else or that the way you thought they should be living their life and behaving, this happens a lot with children, should be a little bit different and they were offended? You see, that's what's happening. And, and when our church leaders and pastors teach scripture, teach basic ideas that the church has been teaching for 2,000 years, it actually offends some people because they go, man, my behavior... It's being called into question. How could you do that? I'm, I'm used to only being affirmed. And so we've in many ways raised a generation of kids who are used to being affirmed. They're used to being parts of sports teams that didn't want to keep score. Right? Didn't want there to be a winner or a loser because we didn't want their self-esteem to be hurt. You know, we all wore kind of helmets. Well, I didn't have to. I didn't have the car seat when I was growing up. I'm 41. But, you know, we just protected them. And then in school, when they were maybe getting called a name or two, we said, oh, you're being bullied. And we went and talked to the teacher and really got involved and basically said to our kids, look, you should never have to kind of engage with somebody who's being mean to you. Is that real life, though? Where my son came home probably a year ago, uh, Pearson, he said to me, he said, Dad, this kid called me a name today, and it's just really hurting me. He's bullying me. I go, are you kidding? You're not being bullied. You're in middle school. Like, that's what middle schoolers do. They call each other names. All right? Now, there's one thing to be bullied where there's physical harm, and you really feel threatened, and you can't walk into class. And I, and I know that's a real thing, and it happens. I'm not trying to make light of the real thing. What I'm saying is we've kind of raised a bunch of people, a new generation, who we have no ability to sit in a room with somebody who thinks differently than us, who disagrees with us, who has a point of contention with us. And so that's creating an environment where if you feel any kind of disagreement, any angst about a relationship or disagreement, then the person who has a problem with the way you're living, the choice you make, that's the evil one, not you. And so that's creating an environment where it's very difficult to have real and meaningful conversations. We're finding that most of the real conversations now have to happen in a one-on-one -on -one setting, in a private, you know, conversation over coffee, right? You have to do a lot of prep work to kind of build up to just sort of deliver maybe some information that's going to feel a little threatening, you know, as we try to confront things in, in our friends' lives. And I think in the church we have to be aware of this because we are called in the church to call one another out, okay? Now, we're supposed to do this in love. There's very clear prescription for what it means to love one another. But going forward as the church, we're gonna we need to be a little tight tight knit here. We need to be a community that can kind of deal with like hearing from one another in relationship. The areas where we're seeing that maybe lifestyle choices and behaviors are going away from what God's called us to be. Now, what does that mean? When we try to live good faith, I think there's some questions we have to ask ourselves for the days ahead. And that's where it's gonna get a little difficult. Are we called as Christians to assimilate into this culture? Is that part of um, what Christ calls us to do or, or accommodate? And I know those two words might sound a little familiar, so let me define them. You see, assimilation would mean 
you kind of just run with the stream of culture. Like the, the river's running downstream, you just kind of jump in and say, I'm just going to be like everybody else. I want to fit in. I want people to like me. But accommodation means I'm going to exist and be myself. And in doing so, I'm going to learn how to work and be alongside other people. You know, there's this great example. We, we talk about this in the book that um, in America, you hear a lot of people refer to America as the great melting pot, right? We all kind of just, everybody throws into the same pot and we all melt together and we all become the same person. That's not the dream for America. We define it a little more like a potluck dinner, right? You ever been to a potluck? Where everybody kind of shows up and brings their best dish and we all kind of enjoy one another's dishes, but, but you don't change who you are as you present yourself to the world. And see, that's the thing about Christians throughout the ages is we've been a really stubborn bunch. You know, there's been plenty of times throughout history when the culture didn't quite understand who we were, why we think a certain way, why we couldn't just come along with the way the world saw things. And as a stubborn bunch, we learned how to accommodate, how to live alongside one another. I think of the Coptic Christians in Egypt, 15% of the population for centuries, respected in many cases. It's only been in the last couple of years where that group is now being pushed out of Egyptian life. But 15% of the population always had a good relationship with the government, which was largely Muslim. But there was a respect. They learned how to get along with one another. It's something that we're losing in our culture today. So how do we move forward? Well, one of the ways we have to think about this is that good faith Christians live their convictions and they stand out from the crowd. So where does conviction come from? Do you think it's just bravado? Where we just sort of have an opinion and we shout it out or... Tell everybody in the world what we think to be true. No. You see, conviction comes from deep in our hearts. It comes from our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And then below that is Scripture. And unless we're immersed in Scripture, it's hard for us to actually have conviction. Many of us might have opinions, but you really don't know if you have conviction until it's tested. My same son, Pierce, we were in New York. He was going to school. We lived in Tribeca. He was at the public school, PS 89. Great school, um, one of the best. I mean, it was it was great. But one day, he kind of found himself in one of these awkward situations as an 11-year-old, and, and I didn't know that we had really prepared him well for this, but I happened to be out of town on a trip, um, which is how these things tend to happen. Uh, I'm on a trip, and uh, about 2.30, right before school lets out, one of his friends, who's a girl, fifth grade, says to him, I have a crush on Joni. And my son's like, what, what? She goes, I have a crush on Joni, another girl in the class. And he kind of you know, just reacts, and he just goes, that's gay, and that's wrong. And the girl looks at him, and she's like, what are you talking about, man? There's nothing wrong with that. And he, and he, he kind of doesn't know what to do, and he goes, well, it's against God's laws. Right? This is Tribeca, New York. Did I tell you that? <laughs> Public school. Probably the only Christian in this class, at least that would admit it, would acknowledge it. And so within minutes, the little girl's gone around and told a few of the other kids in the class, and by the time, 20 minutes later, school's letting out and they're heading into the playground for the parents to meet them and pick them up. The rumor has already gone around the entire fifth grade, and his friend runs up to him and says, everybody in the class says you hate gay people. And so he's shattered. Like, I didn't say that. That's not what I said. So the long walk home with my wife, as she recalls, she's trying to call me, and of course I'm still in the air, so I'm not 
I'm not available in a moment when I need to be available. When my plane lands, I think it was in Dallas, I see the urgent text like, you have to call me. Your son's done something horrible. <laughs> and he's uh, blaming me for all this because, of course, I'm the guy who writes the books about this stuff, so this is how it all comes up. Well, I said, tell me the story. So he recalls the story. And, and I said, son, I'm going to write you a letter tonight. I, I, I want to think through this. I'm proud of you, but also there's some things I need to say to you. And so it was kind of good that I was out of town because it forced me as a dad to just sit down and go, now, what do I think about all this? We're trying to teach our kids to engage on mission, to live in a world where people think differently and believe differently, where we need to love and respect different points of view. How do I handle this? And so I kind of penned this letter, and we actually put the letter in the book, where I just basically said to him, son, I'm so proud of you for your conviction. Like, you, you really stood up for what you believed. You told the truth. This is what we've taught you. This is what we've taught you from Scripture about the God's design for marriage and sexuality. So you told the truth. I'm proud of you. You get an A+. Plus. I said, but I'm going to give you a C on something else, which is how you love your neighbor. See, your, your, your friend, she doesn't believe this. Her parents probably haven't taught her the things we talk, taught you. And so in a moment when somebody has a different point of view, you have to be very careful how you react. Be careful how you respond to people. If it's in a hateful way or a judgmental way, and they don't understand God's laws because they never signed up for God's laws. Then touting that in their face and then looking down on them is never going to earn you the kind of respect and friendship you're going to need to be in relationship with friends who are different than you. So now secondly, when you go back to school in the morning, let me help you be prepared for this because there's a good chance you're going to get called into the principal's office. And the reason is, is the principal is gay and School in Tribeca was very much, you know, it's just we live in Tribeca, right? And so I said, when you go into school and if you get called in, I, I would understand that might happen. Let me just help you think through what you're going to say. I gave him a couple things to think about. One was that you never said you hated gay people. That never came out of your mouth. Number two, you have the freedom as an individual to have an opinion. And that's okay. You can express that opinion. Third, that you're sorry for any kind of offense that may have happened, you know? And I said, if it goes beyond that, call me. Okay? <laughs> so, my point in telling that story, I know it's, that's, that's, that's kind of a toxic thing to talk about, right? These days, we're not supposed to talk about the gay conversation. Well, guess what? When you say you're a Christian today, it's the first thing that comes up. So we can either ignore that, Act like nobody's talking about it. Act like our kids don't disagree with a lot of parents about this. Or we're going to have a frank conversation that this is the way the world's going and that there's a conflict happening. It just happens to be the presenting topic right now. It's much bigger than just the topic of conversation about sexuality. It's about do we as Christians believe what Scripture tells us about the way God's designed human beings to function and to flourish and how our cities can function and flourish. It goes far beyond the sexuality discussion. It applies to how we think about money and wealth, how we think about what we consume, how we think about our neighbors who are Muslim and different than us, how we think about race, how we see the image of God in other people and how we respond. A long list of things that Scripture is what grounds our conviction. So part of this project for us, and I know for David and I, has been to really get reminded of how much the wealth of wisdom and knowledge there is in Scripture. And when we're living kind of apart from it and we're not reminded of it, it 
can be very threatening. We can get a little fearful. When you start to read and understand this great story that we're living in or amongst a scripture, you gain confidence that there's ways we can engage some of these really difficult conversations. <laughs> so that I invite David back up to kind of conclude our time before some questions. So, um, you guys uh, doing all right? Yeah. yeah. Gabe and I are kind of serious dudes, uh, and we uh, we love we love sharing some of the things that we're we're learning. And um, let me just let me just remind you that this is this is a project about difficult difficult conversations, and uh, you know this is that's what makes them by nature difficult. Um, you know we know millennials are are struggling with a lot of these questions. We give talk about millennials as a generation, but it's really our, our, our times, our whole world is asking for, for an answer. I mean, one of the studio uh, executives that we were working with, uh, she watched a segment on, on uh, some late night television show and it was talking about fundraising and how you know people are giving money to these television ministries and it was like kind of an expose and it was this particular television show host had started sending in donations to this particular organization and he was just he showed a stack of mail <laughs> that had come back. And so this this non-Christian studio executive sent me this video, even though we're working on a project, we've become really we become really good friends. She's she's an awesome leader, an African American woman working at Sony at NBC uh, uh, Universal. And uh, so she's like, see, this is what, like, this, this kind of Christianity is just crazy. This is not a thesis I would want to follow. And, like, she, it was on email, and she wanted to sort of, like, get into this discussion. And, uh, and so it was like, how do we, you know, how do I, how do we help present a different version, a different, you know, understanding of what Jesus would ask us to do? So I actually found some sections of scripture that would help her understand Jesus actually condemned money-making efforts that would, would in any way... Uh, you know, take take uh, would would prey on poor people, right? And so I kind of showed her like the Jesus that we believe in doesn't doesn't endorse everything that Christianity stands for in our world today. Like, that's a hard place to be in, where you know, like how do you how do you defend a certain sort of space for us to disagree? One of the things we found in our research here was that good faith Christians make space for people who disagree. Maybe in this room tonight, we've got people that have different points. I'm sure we would on uh, many of the topics that we're talking about. Uh, but part of what we're trying to say is that um, we're look, we're on this journey ourselves. We're trying to learn a lot. Um, one of the things is this whole chapter on race, and uh, Gabe and I talk about as two white guys uh, how we've been learning. You know, like obviously there's been a ton of issues in the last couple of years, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, so many other questions of race and privilege and prejudice in this country. And uh, we've been learning some really important lessons about our own implicit racial bias and, and how hard it is to get through that. Um, I mean, just, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing, guys, like just, two, just week, two weeks ago, I was in Phoenix. I was speaking to a group of African-American pastors, and uh, I remember co coming, and I was like, man, I don't, I don't know why I'm doing this. It wasn't because it was an African-American group of leaders. It was just like, it's just not like what I typically would sign up for. But it was one of the most special speaking gigs I've ever had. Uh, and it was just such a, a moment for me to, to, to share and, <laughs> and spend time with these, these men of God. And it was rem I was reminded again of my own implicit racial bias. Um, and so there's so many different ways that we want to just remind you of how hard it is to go through some of these kinds of issues and how important it is for us as Christians 
to deal well with those. Uh, just a couple more quick examples of some difficult conversations. Uh, one of the people that I know really well, she's a millennial, and um, her name is Tracy. And um, uh, her dad's a pastor. She isn't attending church uh, very often, if at all. Um, she's a very close friend of our family. Um, and, and so I asked her, I was like, hey, you know, how's it going? I mean, you know, you moved to a different state and you haven't really been going to church. And, you know, like, how is it, how's it, how's it going for you? And, um, and I can tell, man, right away, just like tears started coming, you know, and she just was, was really having a hard time with it. And I was like, listen, I, I, I don't love you any less that you're not going to church, right? I, I don't, I think it's like just, you, maybe you could answer the question of like, what's going on in your heart that's keeping you in any kind of distance from it? Um, and maybe you should find some, you know, friends who could kind of walk through those questions with you. That was an example of a difficult conversation. Um, another example for me uh, was I was flying home from a, a speaking thing in uh, Chicago and uh, got a middle seat, which is like kind of purgatory on a plane, you know, sort of sitting there, squished in, and it's back in the plane, and we get down, we get going on the tarmac a bit, and uh, the lady next to me asked me what I do, and I'm, I'm an author, kind of a big deal, you might not know, right? <laughs> Um, what's the topic? So I'm a researcher. I write off issues. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, I write on issues of faith and religion and Christianity. And so, oh, that's really interesting. And I figured the polite thing to do was to ask uh, what she does. And um, and so she says that she takes that she gets naked for a living. <laughs> there's there's like okay. Truth is, I didn't even know what to say. <laughs> That's a difficult conversation. <laughs> but here's the thing, friends. What I did was I said, um, you know, I've got to have a lot of work to do on this flight. <laughs> and I politely extricated myself from that conversation. When, in fact, I think she might have been saying that she really wanted to talk. Now, there's a whole discussion about whether a guy in the seat ought to be talking to someone like that, and what the whole thing was going on, whether she was just baiting me and challenging me. That's the whole point, right? We're in a culture where people are baiting and challenging and wondering what it is that's going on. And so often they're expressing a certain sort of thing, like this is like, well, you're an extremist. And, and we come right at that problem and say, well, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm all, we've always believed this. Instead of wondering whether there's something beneath the surface and isn't it so interesting that Jesus always goes beneath the surface of these difficult conversations? Right? I'm asking you, in your, in, you all are uh, mature and maturing Christians. Uh, Greg, this morning, used the story of the Good Samaritan. And remember, the story of the Good Samaritan comes in response to a question, who is my neighbor? From a man... The questioner of Jesus is trying to trick Jesus. And so Jesus tells a story that completely reframes things. And he says that the good, that the neighbor is the person that you least expect. Right? And so what we're saying essentially with this, with this difficult conversations idea is that you have just a huge responsibility to express your love for those people in ways that they can truly and and tangibly understand the woman next to me on that plane 
was, even if she was prodding me, if she, even if she was expecting, here's a Christian guy, I bet you he's going to can't handle this, right? That I, I, I saw her straight away as someone who didn't deserve my conversation. Right? That's kind of really what happened for me. I had a self-righteous moment. And I didn't love her uniquely as someone created in the image of God. My beliefs should and will matter. Our beliefs do matter in the world. That there is a point. There is a way that God has designed us to live uh, in community and, and with our bodies and all the rest. And then we need to live that out. Gabe's discussion of his son is a perfect example of this love, believe, live uh, sort of equation, right? He loves his son. He accepts him unconditionally even when he makes mistakes. He's teaching his son to love that the primary virtue of Christianity is expressed in love, that we love God, that we love our neighbor, that our beliefs matter, that we're not just trying to, like, just, you know, change everything just so we're well, better light. And then that he has to live that out, right? That's an example. The story of Pierce and Gabe is a story of that. The story of me on a plane is a story of me not getting the love part right, being more concerned about my, the rightness of my beliefs and how it is that I would live that out in the middle seat on the way back from Chicago to L.A. <laughs> All right, so those are some of the things that we've been learning. And, um, you know, that's, that's really the heart of this whole project is to help and invite uh, Greg and, and Gabe back up. Uh, we're going to just take some questions and, and think a little bit about this together. But this notion of difficult conversations is now the, the front lines of what Christianity is being lived out. And for us to sort of respond the way that Jesus would is to look beneath the surface and see the people, see the human beings that God is asking us to interact with, and then to express this idea of love, believe, and live.